Today on episode three, we have an interview with a guest that you are not going to want to miss. I'm your host, The Savage Conservative, and this is The Red Wave Podcast. Alrighty, hello and welcome to The Red Wave Podcast. Today's guest is a former Division I wrestler at Virginia Tech, an ex-FBI agent, as well as the author of the newly published Zune Garden, a political satire telling the story of the growing division in American society. Jordan O'Donnell, ladies and gentlemen. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, your family background, as well as your kind of childhood growing up. Yeah, definitely. Um, so childhood growing up, I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, born and raised, kind of been been there my whole life. And uh, pretty, pretty standard childhood, uh, to be honest. Nothing too, too crazy. Uh, had a lot of friends, cared that people liked me, that sort of thing, you know, just typical growing up. And um, my, yeah, a lot of my family has worked for the government. So my grandfather, who's He's one of my best friends, and we're really close. He uh, he was an FBI agent for 34 years, uh, became one when he was 24, and then I don't think he retired until he was 58, 59. Wow. Then his brother, um, who I never met because he passed away, but he was a CIA agent, and he actually passed away in the line of duty. So there was wow. – uh, Back in the 60s, they were protecting Area 51 and some of the uh, like Lockheed Martin uh, – U2 spy plane project that they were doing in area 51 and uh, on one of their, one of their details back from Los Angeles where skunk works was they were flying back to area 51 plane crashes into a mountain. And uh, yeah, so my uncle, uncle passed away from that. So that was back in the sixties. I never met him. And then uh, my other uncle who he's younger, he's uh, you know, he's 51, 52. He works, he works for the bureau as well. Wow, that's I mean, uh, tragic, but but very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And you said he was working on some Area Fifty One, protecting that. Yeah. So back in the back in the sixties, and I think all this stuff is is declassified by now. Um, they were they were designing the U two spy plane, which was the main. I mean, it's still in use today, but it was the main spy plane that they used in the Cold War. So uh, the plane that they flew over Soviet Russia back in the day to, you know, take aerial footage and that sort of thing. They used the U-2. And uh, when they were creating the U-2, it was a company in Los Angeles called Skunk Works. And they were flying back and forth between, like, designing it in L.A. and then they were actually testing the aircrafts at Area 51. And so there was, like, a CIA detail that would escort the scientists back and forth. And so when, when this plane crashed, it had a couple engineers, uh, a couple different scientists, and then a couple CIA security guards um, who were CIA agents. And my uncle was, my grand uncle was one of them. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, man. Now, uh, growing up with that kind of background, did you know that that was something you wanted to go into? Or was it not until you got older? Yeah, it's... It's something I was, I was like a little bit born and raised. Um, so I think, like I said, my grandfather and I were very close. Uh, I mean, you know, he's 78, but in some ways we're sort of kindred spirits. Uh, definitely really close friends. We share a lot of similar life philosophies. Uh, so from a, from a very young age, he was sort of 
training me in some ways to kind of go into the FBI agent ranks. And, you know, we would just kind of chat about his old investigations and he would sort of phrase them in a way where he would give me some of the facts and then help me and, you know, see what I would do in the situation. And so I kind of, I kind of was raised and had a little bit of training growing up to, to be an FBI agent. And, uh, we, we have a cousin who actually, he was the captain of, um, he's a firefighter. He's the captain of engine number one in New York when, uh, when the world trade centers got bombed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so he actually, he went into the North tower and never made it out. Um, so his, yeah, his name is, his name is Terry Haddon. And, uh, when that happened, hero, hero. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Um, there's actually a, a block of road in, in Manhattan named after him, which is pretty, pretty awesome. But wow. Yeah. Uh, so when that happened, my uncle, that's when he decided, all right, I'm, I'm joining the bureau now. So it was right around 2001. He was close wow. with my cousin and, uh, yeah, he joined up and then, you know, 10, 15 years later, I was, I was finishing up college and kind of had that entire past had been trained a little bit and, and to get into those ranks. And so I, I decided to join up with the bureau. And I also just want to clarify. So I, I had FBI agent offer and was like a couple like weeks away from probably going to Quantico, but I never actually fully finished FBI agent training. So I did work for the FBI for two gotcha. and a half years. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody kind of, they're like FBI agent, like, you know, whatever. Um, but I just do, do want to kind of clarify that a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very cool. So a lot of people I'm sure don't know, I certainly don't know. How do you um, first get involved with the FBI? I know you had the family connections, but I mean, you know, it's not like you go down to the local unemployment office and, and, and uh apply for a job at the fbi so how does that really work right right yeah they're not just like handing out tickets um so i it's it's an interesting process i think you know people take different routes i will say that most people that get into the bureau have some sort of connection it's a very fraternal organization and almost everybody i mean the amount of people that their parents were agents or their grandparents were agents. I mean, it's insane. Like you meet somebody every other day. It's like, Oh yeah, my brother's also an agent or my sister's an agent or something like that. So I would say a lot of, a lot of people, the way you get involved is is through knowing somebody. Um, And so that's, you know, kind of the situation I had where I, I had some inside knowledge and then was able to apply. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, you basically just apply like you would any other job, um, you know, a USA jobs posting comes up where they have the FBI internship comes up and really, yeah, basically, any, I mean, technically like anybody can apply. It's just, you know, less than 5% of people get in. Really? Um, wow. That's, that's what really makes it difficult. It's not so much whether you apply or not, anybody could really apply, sure. but you know, can you pass the background investigation? Can you pass the polygraph? Are you good enough in the interviews? Uh, that sort of thing. Cause they, I mean, they really do only take sort of the cream of the crop in some ways. So yeah, I think it's the process that's, that's the most challenging that really weeds everybody out. Do you know what kind of qualities they're looking for in the interview? I mean, are there different kinds of people that they're looking for for different positions? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, so one of like one of the positions that I applied for initially was uh, it's called SSG and they're, they're basically like a surveillance group. Uh, so they were created 
to uh, sort of supplant agents' roles. And, you know, if agents didn't want to be awake from midnight to 8 a.m. watching some counterintelligence operative, this SSG unit would get in there. So they actually, they take a lot of, a lot of college athletes, you know, a lot of people that are physically fit, can run, drive, that sort of thing. Because in some ways you're sort of an agent just without a gun. So that sort of role would take that type of person. Uh, the FOIA analyst, which is the job that I did, they take somebody who's a little bit more research-based. Um, so I was a history major in college, and you know, all you do is research. And so with that FOIA analyst position, or really, really any analyst position, the intelligence analyst positions, the SOS, which is staff operations specialist, any of those positions are really research-intensive and just a lot of critical thinking involved. Um, so you can get that from a, a science major, a history major is really good. Uh, but there's definitely, I think one of the biggest fallacies of the FBI is that they only hire criminal justice people or that if you have a criminal justice major, that's the best way to get into the Bureau. I, I think I only knew like one or two people in the Bureau that had criminal justice majors. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They really, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, becoming a criminal justice major, you won't be able to get into the Bureau. You definitely will. but um, they, they pull from, from all over the place. I mean, you know, people are, people that are agents, some of them used to be teachers, some of them used to be meteorologists. Um, some of them used to be, uh, military, some were cops, like kind of, kind of all over the place. And I think that is one of the beauties of the FBI. I have a lot of frustrations with the FBI, but one of the beauties of the FBI is they do a great job of, of pulling together a lot of collective, collective talent with, uh, pretty interesting pass i'll bet i'll bet you mentioned um that they like recruiting college athletes you said that yeah yeah Uh, um i mean that kind of segues beautifully into what i'd like to talk about next with you is your time at virginia tech and your wrestling as well as leading up to that um you know college athletics is is uh very difficult very high intensity um, so how'd you get into that and what led to you wrestling at Virginia Tech? Right. Um, so I, my, two of my other uncles, I've got a lot of uncles. Um, two of my other uncles, they wrestled in high school. And when I was in middle school, I was this really scrawny, squirrely kid before I hit puberty. And then I kind of hit puberty and that's when I got athletic. But before that I had like zero athleticism whatsoever um and so I actually didn't start wrestling until my freshman year of high school and basically my my two uncles they said hey man yeah you know give it a shot you know you might be good at it uh and so I got I got pretty lucky I started freshman year of high school and just kind of had a natural ability for it a knack for it per se and I won I won districts within three months of you know starting wrestling and it was kind of, kind of kind of off to the races at that point. So did pretty well at regions and states my sophomore year. Junior year did really well at states. And then um, summer of junior year, went up to Virginia Tech for a camp up there. And I just wrestled really, really well at the camp and was, was doing well against some nationally ranked and qualified guys. And uh, the head coach invited me back for a, for a visit in the fall. And uh, I had some other, you know, some other – ideas of you know maybe going to unc or columbia but virginia tech was hands down the best team that was recruiting me i mean they've been a top 10 team for the past 10 years straight wow. so 
Um, it was kind of a no brainer for me. As soon as I got that recruiting trip, I, I signed on, um, couple couple months after that maybe like two months i think i actually gave it to my dad as a christmas present he was a, oh, really? yeah he was a hokey so that's cool yeah when when we went on my my recruiting visit man he was a kid in a candy store and uh for christmas i pretty much said hey dad i'm gonna i'm gonna go wrestle at virginia tech so i uh yeah i did that and then showed up i think a week after i graduated high school we got up there for summer training and then yeah, I wrestled, wrestled at Tech for about a year and a half. And uh, that was pretty local, or relatively local for you, right? Yeah, Blacksburg, which is where Virginia Tech is. It's about three hours from the Richmond, Richmond area. Okay. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, wasn't much of a drive. Yeah. And during college, did you know kind of right away you wanted to uh, study history? Or, or kind of how did that develop? Yeah, I so there, there's this kind of saying that when you're a college athlete, you get, um, whatever you get, you get sports, academics and friendships and yeah. you only pick two out of three. Yeah. Um, and so I basically was like, all right, either I'm going to be a hermit or I need to pick a major. That's pretty easy that I can just kind of get, <laughs> get naturally. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I did, I mean, I, I took a legitimate interest in history and I really, really like history. I also like literature, obviously. I like to build things, so I like engineering. But, you know, I was like, man, I'm not going to wrestle, try to have friends and be a civil engineer. That just sounds crazy. So I uh, I picked history, and, you know, it was it was a really good major for me. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, for a while, thought I was going to be a teacher instead of joining the FBI. And, you know, it was one of those things that, I mean, I never had to study, so I – I had all my free time and could still get pretty good grades because a history major is not super challenging. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally a, a, a college athlete, but nothing to the uh, uh, prestige of Virginia tech. Uh, yeah. So I can't imagine the, the commitment that came with that. Right. Really what do you amazing. play? What do you play at Hillsdale? Uh, I play golf actually. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of rides to uh, the course, a lot of time, Um, you know, spend like, it's probably, it can get close to five, six hours a day. So it, it, you know, driving there, playing 18 holes, coming back. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, yeah. Heck around 18 is like, if you get out of there in three and a half, like you're pretty lucky. Oh, you're flying. Yeah. You're flying. Yeah. Um, yeah, so your your history degree was, um, as you said, useful because you were researching the whole time. So did you go directly from college to the FBI? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, it, it was super useful because and I, I think the main skill that you probably learn as a history major is analytical thinking and research and, and writing, I guess, as well, you know, like report writing, which is really good for intelligence analysts or just any type of analyst position, because you're not trying to write a fictional narrative. You're trying to take facts and put them into, you know, a story. And that's basically what you do with history. So it was super helpful. And I, I started off thinking I was going to, to be a high school teacher. So that was kind of, you know, I was passionate about that. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm passionate about educating people. Um, Hmm. And just, yeah, I mean, just 
Yeah, I, it's actually funny in my writing, I really have to stop myself from being like too didactic. I'm always, I'm always like subtly like teaching lessons. Yeah. I have to like really get away from it. Um, so yeah, I, I went straight, I started grad school my last semester of undergrad and then I finished grad school um, in a year. So I got my master's in five and then had the job offer for the bureau on the day of my graduation, I actually had to accept it the day I graduated. And then I took a two week trip to Spain and Ireland and then got back, started the background investigation. And I was up at Quantico in like four months. Wow. Yeah. Now, I know you've said that uh, working at the FBI, I don't know if it was working at the FBI that caused it or some other stuff, but I know you got a little... Uh, maybe a bitter taste in your mouth when it comes to the government. So yeah. What kind of caused that? And I know that eventually led you to uh, writing this book. So I'd love to hear about what happened there. Right. Yeah. I, I think a bitter taste is is a perfect way to say it. I, uh, I don't have necessarily, you know, huge animosity, but I, I definitely, <laughs> I don't know. It, I wouldn't recommend it to a lot of people, I guess. Um, and I, I don't have, I have some good things to say, but there's a lot of frustrations there as well. And I think, you know, that's, that's a very long story and I don't want to come across as somebody who's just sort of complaining about the bureaucracy of government um, or just the kind of like disillusioning aspects of government, but there are, there, I mean, not to get too political, but if anybody thinks that, you know, complete socialism or communism or getting 50 or 60, 70% of our GDP into the federal government, I mean, go work for the federal government before you get on that bandwagon, because it is just one of the most incompetent places that you will ever, ever work in your entire life. And, and people, I mean... Everybody enters there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and within a year or two, they look like soulless zombies. I mean, you just got you're, you're going through all this stuff and all the. I mean, and I don't, I don't know a single person in the FBI that doesn't have their like, the bureaucracy screwed me over, or HR messed up my stuff, or you know, like some weird stipulation made me have to do something like that. So I think overall, that was probably my main frustration. Um, but I think even more than that is that the government is really, really good at, let's say we rank people from a one to a 10. One is the least competent, 10 is the most competent. The Bureau is really good at making ones, fives, and making tens, sixes. Uh, it's really hard to, in my opinion, wow. like really mm. thrive in the government. Um, they, they basically, the bureaucracy limits the best and brings up the worst. And I think for people that are really ambitious, really trying to get after it, um, you know, like you take somebody's, uh, Elon Musk, you put that guy in the government. I mean, he's going to quit within a week. I mean, he just can't handle it. And you see people in Silicon Valley complain about the FDA and the bureaucracy all the time. And I think that's kind of how I got, I mean, I mean, I'm, I recognize that a lot of millennials sort of complain that they don't get up the ladder fast enough. And I don't think that was, that was my case. I, I mean, I put in my time, but I, I just felt that 
it wasn't really a place that was striving for greatness. It was a place that was, that was pretty content with mediocrity. Yeah. And, and there weren't a lot of avenues for somebody who just wanted to thrive and do the very best that they possibly could. There weren't a lot of avenues for them to do that. Wow. That's interesting. I've never really heard it put that way when you said how it makes it the ones a five and it makes tens sixes. Right. That's, that's really interesting. And, and I, I, the point you made about Elon Musk or someone like that, that goes into the government, they, I can't imagine they would stay that long, just like you said. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just, there's too much baloney. I mean, and, and <laughs> they just wouldn't, they wouldn't buy into it, man. They would be like, gosh, you guys are light years behind me. I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not doing this. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I mean, not to say I'm Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or something like that, but I just, I shared a lot of, frustrations with it and you know i stuck it out for a while trying to see if it would sort of change and it got to the point where i said you know this is this if i choose a career with the fbi it's it's going to be a kind of constant frustration so decided sure. decided there was a another another route to take hmm. so it leaves this this kind of bitter taste in your mouth and uh, you're, you decide to write a book, Zune Garden. Um, were you, is that something you had always been thinking about or did that something, was that, did that come about while you were working at the FBI and what, what ultimately caused you to leave? Yeah, I think. So Zune, what'd you say? I was going to say kind of what was the, uh, decisive point you, you said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So Zoom, when I was working for the Bureau, I was working FOIA, uh, which is, for those who don't know, basically FOIA is the people who take classified documents and we put the lines and the redactions over them. So we kind of get to decide what goes out to the public and what doesn't. And it's a fascinating job because every single high-profile thing comes through our office but it's also monotonously boring because you're just drawing boxes on top of words every day, 24 seven, you know? But because of that, I worked, I worked some pretty interesting things while I was in the bureau, everything from, you know, JFK to Jeffrey Epstein to Clinton email, Russia, Jim Comey's emails. I mean, just all all sorts of stuff. So I kind of got this inner look at the government um, and just sort of how, how broken it was. And then on top of that, the tribalism and the polarization is just so pervasive in our entire society. And I remember there was just a random day where I basically said, man, this could be bad. I mean, you know, this isn't just, you know, the history major in me started to look at what led to world war one, world war two, some of these other big problems. Hmm. And I just said, man, we, like we are getting threatened from the radical right, the radical left, just the cold civil war that's going on in the country right now. There's this kind of overwhelming sense of decline. Nobody knows where it's going to head. And so I decided that I needed to, you know, write something to sort of counteract it. And that's how Zoom Garden came about. Um, And I, I was debating writing a nonfiction novel and nonfiction is just, 
not as effective as fable or allegory. Um, Yeah. You can, you can kind of say things that might be a bit more offensive through an allegory or, you know, they might hit home. If you, if you just come out straight up and say it, people will be a little bit more angry, but if you, if you disguise it through an allegory, people might be more receptive towards it. And so, yeah, I just, I decided to write, write the allegory zoom garden and, Basically, very basic premise is that it's it's similar to Animal Farm, and there's a zookeeper, and he grants the animals, the zoo animals, freedom to govern the zoo however they wish. And the wolves want it one way, and the sheep want it another way, and they accidentally steal all of the animals' freedoms and slowly destroy the zoo. Uh, and there's a there's birds, so the wolves have eagle and the the sheep have owl and both of those birds are spreading propaganda throughout the zoo and then yeah and then all the animals also are using they use pigeons to communicate with each other yeah 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 so it's it's a big allegory about kind of just exactly what's happening in the modern day is we've got a radical right a radical left we've got medias that are completely biased for both of them and then on top of that we just have every single person expressing their opinion throwing pigeons into the sky tweeting saying all of these things and it's really creating a chaotic zoo where nobody really knows what the heck is going on yeah yeah. so that that's the book and and to answer the question about you know when i decided to leave um, what really led to it was I was supposed to be at Quantico in January for agent training. And they were like, yeah, you're, def- you're probably going to be in January, if not January, like guaranteed March and January and March passed. And there was a guy in my office who had been waiting for literally 10 years to go to agent training. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm not becoming that guy. Uh, I've got, you know, bigger, better things. And I felt that, Zoom garden and spreading that message amidst all of these polarized times that that was more important than, than joining the agent ranks. Hmm. So, I mean, speaking of polarization, like uh, there's no, I'm hesitant to say better, but better example of that than right now, what's going on with all the rioting um, right. I mean, that couldn't be more relevant. Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting that, uh, you know, we've got a, about a 22 person team, um, that's going to be, you know, promoting this for the entire summer. And we're planning on taking a big road trip around the country, promoting the novel and almost every, I think everybody was a big believer in the book to begin with, and certainly a big believer in the road trip. And then as soon as all of this stuff started happening in the past week, everybody's called me up and they're like, Jordan zoom garden is happening right now. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, man. I mean, not to call it prophetic or anything, because I think I tried to write it so that it would apply to any, any sort of chaotic situation, but it really is. Yeah. Very applicable right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about the, the, the road trip you just mentioned. I know you have a bus that you fixed up and you're taking it across the country to promote the book. Tell me how that's going. Yeah, definitely. And I would, I'd love to hear your thoughts too on the book because I know you've read it and we could, we could definitely chat some more about that and kind of, you know, just the, the modern relevance of it. 
Um, cause I haven't really had a chance to really, you know, chat about the book and, and talk about you know, like the inner workings of it. But, um, yeah, the, the road trip is basically the book is pretty pessimistic. The book is a warning. And so uh, I don't, I know that the big critique of pessimistic warning books is, all right, well, what's the solution, you know? And so we wanted to create sort of a, a big, fun, more like adventurous way to travel around the country, spread empathy, and maybe kind of offer solutions as we did that. And so we bought a school bus. I converted it with help from two of my buddies. And then we bought two travel trailers, hired 20 college interns. And uh, within the next couple of weeks, we're going to set out on the road traveling around America and basically just taking the book to the people. I think this is a book that Americans need to read and Americans need to hear about. And so instead of doing just a typical book tour, I really want to do a tour where we like literally go up to people and just tell them about it or go into a city and tell the news station about it. Um, Yeah. Really just take it straight to the American people. Now let me take a quick break to tell you about my friends over at CrusaderOutlet.com where you can get some great conservative apparel to wear out in public. I love doing it. You should too. Go over to CrusaderOutlet.com slash discount slash wave or simply use discount code wave to get 10% off your order at the checkout. I highly recommend it to you. Go ahead and do that. CrusaderOutlet.com discount code wave. Yeah, so going around uh, the nation uh, given these, you know, uh, uh, sharing the book with, with people, um, what do you plan on doing? Because I know the, uh, the book is really like we've talked about geared towards what's going on in America, not only today, but just generally what's going on. Um, so what do you, what do you say to people that have never heard of it? And, you know, you're trying to make the pitch, um, to get them to read it because it's really an excellent read. Yeah, that's, you know, that's tough. Um, I, I think, you know, kind of, as you were saying, it, it's really a portrait of what's going on right now. So, I mean, I, I would very much preface that it is, it does not lean left or right. I think my intention with writing it was basically to take almost like a, a bird's eye or even a godly look down at the earth and say, okay, this is, this is exactly what's happening right now. Hmm. Um, and so I would probably preface with that. It's not, you know, if you lean left or you lean right or even radical left or radical right, or if you're just moderate, I think any, any human in America right now that is concerned about the direction of the country would very much be intrigued by reading this book. Um, and they would, they would really, it would really open their eyes to kind of quite a, quite a bit that's going on. Um, it would maybe make them look in the mirror and say, you know, maybe how do I need to change or how can we sort of prevent, I mean, the book doesn't end well, I, you yeah. know, I'll go, yeah. I'll go and throw that out there and yeah. it's, it definitely serves as a warning. And, you know, hopefully people read it and say, okay, man, how the heck, like, what do we do? All right. You know, we have a problem and it actually is bad. You know, you have to understand the problem before you really address the solution. And I I hope that people really see that what's going on in the country right now is not just something that's probably going to pass, 
but is actually something that that could cause a significant calamity or destruction down down the road and not to be too pessimistic or fatalistic but you know i mean could really change america as we know it so i i think that would you know it's kind of a i would definitely make have more brevity than that and make it a little more concise but that's that's the overall concept i mean if you are an american or really anybody who a Brit, a british anybody who is living in a divided country and is frustrated with the division and doesn't know where it's going to lead this this is absolutely a book that you need to check out absolutely i'd love to kind of finish up by talking about um the animals which you use, the wolves and the sheep. And I'd love to get kind of your thinking behind that. Um, not really who is who in American society, but just kind of what you were trying to show uh, through using those animals um, and the various animals that uh, are also in the story, um, but particularly the wolves and the sheep um, and, and kind of what that represents. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of different animals, obviously. Uh, you know, like Maximus the bear is sort yes. of, he's basically the only character in the book that anybody likes. Because um, he's the, ad, I mean, and everybody absolutely loves him. You know, I mean, he's yeah. an admirable, admirable, stoic one who just wants goodness for every animal in the land. And then you have the wolves and the sheep who I, I, I don't, you know, personally, think that you know the right are wolves or that the left are sheep but i wanted to portray the left and the right as the as they see each other and i think especially in the mainstream media the right tends to portray the left as socialistic gun thieving soft sheep and the left tends to portray the right as tyrannical mean racist misogynistic homophobic greedy wolves and it's just that's lacks so much nuance and so i just said all right you know to heck with it let's just let's make the main characters the very things that americans are claiming that they are and i hope that through that people can just see how myopic myopic that is i mean it's it's just so foolish to really associate an entire you know 50 percent of another culture of our own culture and throw them into that. Oh, well, they're just like socialistic sheep or they're tyrannical wolves. It's, it's so much more complex than that. And I hope, I hope that the book and everything that goes on through it, you know, with the decrees and the animals losing their freedoms and the wolves and the sheep slowly gaining power. And then they start lying about everything and nobody knows what is reality. Nobody yeah. knows what's going on. And it just leads to absolute chaos. I mean, it's exactly what's happening right now, straight up. I mean, it's exactly what's happening in the country. And I hope that people can read the book and, uh, and really have their eyes open to, to potentially make some change. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the book is uh, Zoom Garden. You can get it on Amazon. I'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, Jordan, where can they find you? Where can the listeners find you on, on the internet, on social media? Yeah. So you could, uh, Jordan O'Donnell author.com. That's probably the easiest one. And our social media is on there and, you know, there's links to the book, um, on there as well, but, uh, Jordan O'Donnell author across all the social medias. And then we also have Zoom garden bus tour, um, across all the social medias or just Zoom garden. If you're, 
if you're interested in watching 20 people road trip around America together, um, it's definitely going to be a bit of a reality TV show and it should be, should be pretty entertaining. Absolutely. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. The book's fantastic and I know it's exactly what uh, really America needs right now. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jack. And I, I, I uh, you know, I'm obviously biased because I'm the author, but I, I definitely agree. And I hope that people will pick it up and uh, have their eyes opened a little bit. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Jack. All right. Well, this has been the exclusive interview with ex-FBI Jordan O'Donnell. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'm your host, The Savage Conservative, and this is the Red Wave Podcast.